Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Rather than a flashback this week, I thought we'd mix it up. So, I've got something a little different in store. The tale we'll hear tonight is an excerpt from a new novel by author Leslie Lutz, read by the author herself. I also sat down with Leslie for a chat, virtually, a little over a week ago, which I'll share with you afterward as well. Leslie's new novel, Fractured Tide, came out just last month. After reading it myself, I have to admit, having been on maybe a dozen scuba dives, I was pulled in by the natural marriage of diving and horror. But the tale Leslie weaves is more intricate than that. I think it was one of the reviewers that called it Lost Meets Stranger Things. Not sure I could put it better myself. We don't tend to feature much young adult horror on the podcast, but with the summer months approaching and many people with extra time on their hands, I can't think of a better time for a fast-paced, time-bending creature feature. I had the pleasure of spending some time in the hammock reading Fractured Tide in the last month or so. So did my 14-year-old son as soon as I was done. It was nice to be able to read something that we both enjoyed. So... Without further ado, listen with me to an excerpt and interview from Leslie Lutz's Fractured Tide. (laughs) 
I had done this kind of dive hundreds of times on dozens of wrecks. But the descent felt strange this time, alien. And I was the alien, slowly floating through the atmosphere of a new planet, pulled by gravity to a place I didn't belong. Brave new world, baby, I told myself. Brave new world. You may not belong, but you're going there anyway. It took ten minutes to drop eighty feet and reach the wreck. Halfway down, we hit a swift current. I spent a solid minute, pulled sideways like a flag on a pole, moving hand over hand down the line. Marshall followed like a pro, the yellow stripe along his leg, making him easy to distinguish from the other divers closer to the surface. Once the current eased up and we dropped another forty feet, the ship appeared within the mist beneath me, two hundred feet long and almost turtled, its hull swelling up from the sand. I pegged it as a Navy destroyer of some kind. A spar in the bow jutted out at a 45-degree angle, extending so far it disappeared in the haze, as if the sea was slowly dissolving it. As I drifted down through the chill of a thermocline, the massive wreck grew. The ship looked different than I remembered, like it had rolled over in its sleep and was inching its way to the coast. As the memory floated away with the current, a shiver that had nothing to do with the cold ran down my spine. Because I'd never been to this wreck before, I couldn't have a memory of it. No one had been here but Phil, and he'd found the wreck only last week. It wasn't on any of the maps. An old World War II vessel newly scuttled to make a reef, he told us. No blog posts or announcements. And somehow I didn't think about how strange that was. When my depth gauge read 95 feet, I landed a few feet from the ship. Marshall followed, letting himself fall to his knees like a man praying on the moon. A warning pulsed louder in me. I had an urge to grab Marshall's arm and shoot to the surface, claw my way back to the boat with this stranger who, for the next 45 minutes, belonged to me. I ignored the instinct. I know you think I've forgotten all about your famous daddy-daughter, listen to your gut lectures. Well, you weren't there. And every year your voice gets softer in my head. And that's not my fault. Marshall gave me an okay sign, more confident than the last time and a little head bob as his bubbles mingled with mine. Mom was already on the other side of the wreck with her group, the neon green stripe running the length of her wetsuit, bright and cheery against the gray hull. Easy to spot when you're following the leader. A diver with blue fins rounded the top and joined us, Colette. Probably Mom's idea of keeping me safe with the new guy, sending someone who'd logged over 300 dives, at least 100 of them in caves and ships, to bring up the rear. I attached my orange line to a sturdy bolt and flipped on my dive light. The three of us slid through a wide gash in the hull, a cloud of bubbles dribbling behind. I unreeled the line, letting it hit the deck so softly the silt barely rose, pulsed a shot of air into my BC to keep me off the floor. Colette stayed within arm's reach, her light a smooth circle traveling along the ceiling. Marshall followed, shooting his beam over the walls like an excited firefly. Scared, maybe. No one gets through a shipwreck scuba course without having the risks tattooed on the inside of their skulls. The first compartment was small, the size of a bedroom. One wall torn open to the sunlit world, the space locked in twilight. We skirted the metal table lying on its side. Marshall's buoyancy was good, his fins a foot off the floor, his movements controlled and small, hands working their way up the bright orange line I reeled out. The door to the next compartment hung open, the beginning of a reddish scale clinging to its hinges. I stopped and pointed. I'm not sure Colette and Marshall understood why. I was watching the beginning of a reef. And if I could speak, tour guide style, 
I would have told them nature has a way of taking back everything, even an object like this meant to defend and attack and destroy. Mother Nature, she takes it all into herself and makes it beautiful again. I unwound more orange line and led them into the silky darkness beyond the door and into the galley. Since the ship was tilted, you know the tables and crates and cooking gear had all shifted to one side. I pointed out objects in the room to Marshall. A single fork on the floor, a glass jar, a can of peaches. At the time, I didn't think how strange it was that the reef program would scuttle a ship with furniture and food still in it. Blow a hole in the hull without taking out the bits first. New life, new reefs, like to grow on bones, not guts. Instead of putting two and two together, I focused on the small black bream darting out of my path, leaving a little gray cloud behind it, and led them deeper. The darkness thickened until I imagined it was like hovering in space, in some corner of the universe where the stars have all gone out. I skimmed the light behind me to check on Marshall, and he sent a cloud of bubbles into the beam, his eyes wide and curious behind his faceplate. As I turned back, my dive light caught the brass glimmer of a plaque. The USS Andrews. I made a mental note to write the name in the dive log, add it to the post-dive fish and history talk when the three of us got topside. Two more pitch-black compartments and I found a small octopus. It was time to get my brand-new wreck diver back to the charter. Just to make sure we had plenty of time for mistakes. But I hadn't seen one of these little guys in years, so I was ridiculously excited. Curled up into the size of a basketball, he'd stuffed himself in the corner behind a wooden crate. The creature stilled under my light. Then the tentacles unspooled in slow motion. My breath thundered, fading and swelling. No matter how calm I am, the sound's so loud in my head, I always think fish for a hundred miles can hear me breathe. I reached toward the tip of one tentacle. It shied away, trembling. I pushed off from the wall to give it room to escape. When I turned to watch it float toward the doorway, I realized Marshall was gone. Oh God, I'd lost him. Entry 2 I threw my beam all over the room. No Marshall, not at the opening, not anywhere. A small cloud of silt hovered at the doorway. I swam to the entrance and pulled myself halfway into the hallway beyond. My light picked up nothing, as if the ship had swallowed him whole. Another beam crossed mine. Colette and I locked eyes, and even behind the mask, I could see the shock. A new diver was off the line. Dad, you don't know that kind of panic. The denial. I was in charge, me, and I'd lost him. Colette grabbed the gauge at my shoulder and fumbled it over. The glass face read 1,200 PSI. Her hand stilled, which meant she was calculating, just like I was. In panic mode, Mr. Marshall was probably sucking it down, which meant he was already at 1,000 PSI. At that depth... 1,000 PSI would buy him maybe 12 minutes of life, if he was lucky. I pulled out my slate and golf pencil and argued with Colette for a precious minute. She wanted to go after Marshall. No way was I letting this labyrinth swallow her, too. Finally, she nodded, her hair floating around her mask. She would find Mom and get an extra tank from the surface. I would stay and look for Marshall. She squeezed my shoulder with her gloved hand, turned, and disappeared through the doorway. A faint silt trail led me down a long, narrow hallway. I unspooled the line and tried not to rush. Slow, keep it steady, stay off the bottom. My breath thundered in my ears. Bubbles edged to the corner of the ceiling. Everything inside the ship was tilted, the world off kilter, like swimming through a child's painting of a really bad dream. Marshall's faint cloud of silt led me, like Hansel's breadcrumbs, into the belly of the ship. 
and all the things that could happen to him spun through my mind. He runs out of air, panics, dies. We fish his body out later. Or maybe he runs out of air, finds a way out, and sprints to the surface, and panic makes him forget he shouldn't hold his breath. The air expands in his lungs. They pop like balloons. No, he remembers not to hold his breath, but he still ascends too fast. Nitrogen comes out of solution from his tissues. The bubbles that form lodge in his joints, his brain, every organ. He dies on the helicopter that comes to airlift him out, blood bubbling up from his lungs. I forced the next two scenarios out of my head. Then, honestly, I panicked for a second. Worried I would run out of air too, pictured myself in scenarios two and three, my corpse floating to the surface alongside Marshall's. My mask fogged and the world disappeared. I cleared it with seawater so I could read my gauge. The needle had dropped. A lot. I slowed my breathing. I couldn't leave the ship without finding Marshall. At the end of the hallway, I passed an opening. My hair, which had slipped out of its band, floated in front of my mask. Through the black veil, I swear I saw a flash in the corner of my eye. At first I thought it was Marshall's yellow striped leg. But no, it looked like a dive light. As I turned, the glimmer broke in two pinpoints, then disappeared. Adrenaline made my hands shake, and now I was seeing things from stress or the pressure or God knows what. Where on earth did he think he was going? He was going to get us both killed. My light revealed two upended cots and a pile of jagged bits in the corner where a grouper floated, its eyes huge and unblinking, its mouth opening and closing as it watched me. I slipped inside the small berth, searching the other corners. And then I felt it, a rush of something powerful in my blood, a flare of premonition. I turned, nothing. A corked glass bottle on its side, the hallway door yawning open, half off its hinges. My neoprene skin felt thinner, and I knew the next thing to swim near me would pierce me with the flip of a fin. The spines would impale me right through. I kicked, turning in a circle while fire-hosing my light around the room. Nothing. But my breathing, my heartbeat, my skin, they told me something different. I unclasped my dive knife strapped to my thigh. My light moved smoothly up the walls toward the door. I stopped halfway, pointing the beam to the corner instead. The grouper had jammed its body within it, its eyes huge and shining in my light, the little fins moving slow. It wasn't watching me. It was watching the doorway. You'll think I'm nuts, Dad, but instinct, the weird sense I knew it was going to happen, told me to shut off my light. I didn't argue. Something was looking for me. Click. The world contracted to the size of a sleeping bag. Black so thick, a velvet cloth over my eyes. The chill dropped several degrees. The seconds passed. I breathed, in, out, rush of bubbles. Heart pushing so hard, a caffeine-like rush. My body shook with the cold, as if my wetsuit was nothing. I've never retained heat well, but this kind of chill went deeper its tendrils reaching all the way into my lungs. I couldn't see my gauge, but I could feel it, the needle slinking down, and as I was about to give up to turn on my flashlight and get the hell out of there, suddenly the world wasn't completely black anymore. A faint glow, deep green. It grew in the hallway on the other side of the half-open door. As I watched it brighten, it felt familiar. I swam to a corner of the berth out of sight. The glow grew brighter. A voice inside me said, shut your eyes, you're walking down death row. The worst of them want you to look, so shut your eyes. And yes, the voice whispered, the thing out there, it really is that wicked. It really is that powerful. I stilled. And then a current came, brushing over my face. 
a high-pitched scrape started up, long and slow, like something big moving through a tight space. A thrum as a piece of metal fell. The scrape softened until it faded. I opened my eyes. Blackness. My hands trembling, I flipped on my light, gave myself ten breaths before I swam to the doorway to check the hall. Nothing there. The dread gone, the fear eaten up by the need to find Marshall, I tried to slow my breathing and failed, looking at my gauge, 800 PSI, nine minutes left, if I could calm down. A cloud of silt swirled in the hallway. I went deeper into the ship where I thought Marshall had gone. I turned a corner at the T-junction. Mid-sweep, my light moving into the deeps of the ship. Something grabbed my arm. I screamed a cloud of bubbles. Dark brown hair caught in my light, a familiar mask, the neon green stripe running down a black body. Mom. My relief lasted only long enough to see what she was dragging behind her. It was Marshall, floating. His eyes were closed. His reg was in his mouth, but no bubbles. Mom and I made eye contact. Pure panic. She tapped her oxygen gauge and pointed to the end of the hall. Out. Now. I grabbed Marshall's other limp arm and pulled him from the beast. Somewhere close to the exit, I glanced at his face and my heart flipped into overdrive. You won't believe me, but I saw it. His eyes. Something phosphorescent leaked from them, like tears. I stopped swimming. Mom turned to me. In the crumbling hallway of a shipwreck, 80 feet down and running out of air, she actually took the time to give me the look. You've seen it a hundred times. The blame. Then, like a silvery fish slipping away, the look was gone and she turned to the tear in the ship and swam through. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Thanks for making the time today to chat with me about your new novel, Fractured Tide. Uh, it was just released last month, is that right? Yeah, just came out May 5th. And how's that been going so far? Uh, it's been, you know, it's actually been going pretty well. It kind of depends on the day. It's a strange time to put a book out mm-hmm. because I, I always imagined the way it would go. I'd put this book out, I'd get it in the mail, and then I'd go, you know, do a bookstore event, meet people, look at them in the eye, and everything, of course, since March. It's all virtual. So it's it's a little different than I expected, but I also didn't expect how much I was going to enjoy doing things like this which is talking yeah. to people on, on a podcast. So even though we can't go out, even though we can't go to bookstores, at least there's a way to connect. It's exciting to see people's reactions to it, see it on Instagram and people saying, oh yeah, I just read that. I really loved it. It's been great. It's a good time to get fresh readers anyway. I feel like people are consuming a lot more, uh, especially horror tales, I've noticed. It seems like when everything is kind of chaotic in the world, people seek out things that make the real world feel a little bit more normal. You know, I wondered if that was going to be the case, and I, I still can't tell. Is it just that everything's being consumed more, or if, yeah. or if you're really right, and it's people are being attracted to tales of fear just because, I don't know, it's cathartic yeah. uh, when there's this uh, low level of stress all around us from dealing with the pandemic, but here in a horror story, it's contained, it's in the pages of the book, and you can have your burst of fear, get it over with. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, and be afraid of something. Maybe you can put your finger on it. And in, in, in a book, there's a resolution, you know? There's yeah. there's a solution. And you, sometimes, often, the uh, main character gets to defeat whatever the evil is. And that that's probably pretty satisfying right now when you have uh, things that you can't see trying to get you. No kidding. So can you give uh, listeners a, a little bit of a synopsis about the book? Yeah, no. sure. So... Uh, the main character, Sia, has been on dive charters with her mom and her dad for most of her life. But when her dad goes to prison when she's 15, she ends up becoming her mom's right hand. And she, she leaves school. She's homeschooled and works the charter every day. She takes out a bunch of tourists with her mom one day thinking it's going to be an ordinary dive. Look at the fish, get inside of a wreck, poke around, make a little bit of money to keep the charter afloat. And everything goes wrong. There's a monster that attacks the boat, and she has no idea where it came from, but it seems to be connected to the ship they were, they, were just, uh, they were just poking around in. And she and three survivors end up on an island in the Florida Keys where the rules of time don't seem to apply. 
things get stranger and stranger. And, and I won't go any more than that because it's about it's about survival, of course, because I don't want to give uh, I don't know any spoilers, but it's about survival. But they need more than fresh water and food. They they need to figure out what's going on in this place, why it's different so if they're ever going to get home. Yeah, I thought that was something kind of interesting, how every challenge seemed to evolve, overcome one obstacle. There's always another obstacle waiting in the wings to push them to their limits. Yeah. I'm really attracted to people who have survival skills, like the ability to make a fire out of nothing. I love that scene in Castaway when he finally makes the fire. So for, for Sia, when she first lands on the island, she's all by herself and she has to make fresh water out of salt. And so, you know, that's a challenge that's hard enough, like any of us, it would be very difficult to do. Luckily, she remembers a lesson her dad taught her. But then the problems get more and more supernatural as their time on the island progresses. So, and that was a lot of fun, like throwing bigger and bigger and weirder obstacles at the characters <laughs> every time. Every time things got worse, it was just a little bit weirder. So did you have a fair bit of knowledge of how things like that work? Like how to make a condenser on a beach out of shipwreckage? Nope, <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I I know about scuba diving. I'm not a great scuba yeah. diver, but I am a certified and I can putter around in the water okay. But when it comes to something like survival or making a fire, I know a little bit about how to make a fire, but making fresh water out of salt, I just, I had to Google it. <laughs> I, didn't, yeah. I didn't even know <laughs> you, could, you could do it out of junk that you find, but you can. It just takes a long time. You said, obviously, you've been on several dives. You've been diving for quite a while. Really, it's about uh, 10 years. I, mean, I did get certified when I was, a, a, when I was 13. My, my parents bought me this little scuba package because I kept bugging them about it. But then once I got certified, none of my friends went diving. And, you know, you can't go without a buddy. And I don't know, mm -hmm. I just, I never did it again in my certification lapse. But 10 years ago, I decided I, I've got to do this. I'm ne if I don't do it now, I'm never going to. So I started diving. And I wish I could go more. But I'm landlocked. Uh, so usually I try to sneak in a dive on family vacations if I'm in Florida or Hawaii. Pretty similar situation to myself, too. I got uh, certified years ago. Back when I was a teenager, probably 17, my dad and I got certified. But again, I live in the middle of the prairies, so a trip to Hawaii has a scuba dive in it, but that happens not very often. So you've been diving in Hawaii? Yeah, a couple of times, actually. Yeah, it's gorgeous out there. Gorgeous, and I think what I like about it, too, is it's beautiful, but there's also something a little bit unnerving about it. You did a really good job of capturing that in the book. You know, even though Sia clearly loves being underwater, there is that, you know, that almost sense of claustrophobia I always felt when I was under the water, too. Yeah, a lot of people do get that feeling of claustrophobia. One of the first times when I was 13 and tried to, I was doing some pool work, you know, that certification work, I remember getting overwhelmed with claustrophobia and having to stop. And luckily the the dive master just talked to me a little bit and said, oh, you'll be fine. Just take a deep breath and go back under. And I was, but I, I know that is something that keeps people out of, out of diving uh, is the claustrophobia. And of course in the book, she, Sia ends up, she's not particularly afraid of small spaces, but I push her and the other characters into these, you know, a labyrinth an underwater mm -hmm. labyrinth that is full of darkness. And darkness definitely gives you that feeling of claustrophobia. And I'm personally afraid of that. If I, I've had friends who said, hey, you should learn how to cave dive. I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't think I want to do that. Uh, I mean, it's I admire people who can overcome their fear of tight spaces to get down there, scuba dive into a cave, but that's claustrophobia 
times a thousand. So no wreck diving for you yet. I actually, I want to try to do it. I've yeah. only been diving around wrecks. Uh, I want to try to go in. Uh, and I think that I'm less intimidated by that than I am by a cave. And I think it's because I'm always afraid this big giant rock is going to just land on me. Um, which is why the book I'm working on right now has caves you're going to end up in. And it's not diving. It's just, they're just caving. But uh, I think I'm diving into one of my own fears there. The darkness in the cave. Dark, tight spaces. I notice a theme here. So like, what drew you to scuba diving to begin with as a kid? What was it about it that just really made you want to get in the water with some fins in a tank? I, you know, I don't know exactly what it was. I've, I've pondered over that. I lived for a while on a lake in Mississippi when I was a pretty little kid. I loved being in the water. I just, I was so drawn to it all the time, either, you know, water skiing or boating, swimming in it. But it was a mud puddle of a lake. You couldn't see anything. Like I said, with the darkness, it, if it's dark or if it's just full of silt, you can't see what's under your feet. It's a little terrifying. So when I would see pictures of people scuba diving in this crystal clear water where they could see 100 feet, it just sounded like a blast. So I got it in my head. I was going to be an oceanographer when I grew up. I was going to study sharks or something and just be a scuba. And I am not a shark scientist. <laughs> I am not. I am a writer and editor, but I do still love the water. So what's the coolest place you've ever been scuba diving? The coolest place would probably be in Grand Cayman. There's mm. um, a dive there. goes down pretty deep because, you know, Grand Cayman is really has steep walls underneath the water full of these gorgeous purple sea fans and sponges. And we went down to this turtle cleaning station. And these, tur these sea turtles go down there and just hang out and wait for the fish to come clean their shells. And then seeing uh, in the Bahamas, getting to see some sharks in the distance. I really like sharks, so not too close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but getting to spy them a little bit. Which, of course, I, there's, a, there's a shark in the book, but um, I, when I was writing it, I made sure I'm not going to turn the shark into the bad guy. As much as I love Jaws mm -hmm. as one of the best ocean beast horror movies ever made, I, you know, there's, there's enough shark hate out there. So I made yeah. sure. I was like, the shark's not going to be that much of a problem. I kind of appreciated that, too. I think, you know, as soon as a shark shows up, you automatically assume that, okay, well, here we go. Here's the predator, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, clearly, you had to do quite a bit of research for the different time period stuff, scuba diving tech. I imagine you heard some wild stories in the process of that, too, through contacting other people. Yeah, I something that I heard about that stuck in my head. I went diving on this ship called the Spiegel Grove off the coast of Key Largo. And they told me, you know, people don't go in it very often. I don't know if anybody's allowed to anymore. There's a story about these four divers that went in one day to go exploring the wreck and only one came out. I mean, that's actually how dangerous. If you don't know mm. how to ship dive, if you don't know the rules, if you don't know how to put a line out and stay on it and you get cocky, you can lose your way in these ships. You kick up a little bit of silt and you can never find your way out. So, police had to go the next day and just recover the bodies. So that was one of the things that really stuck in my head about what causes us fear. And I can't imagine how hard that is to be swimming around in circles and realize that you're lost. Like, what does the moment feel like when you realize, I, I guess this is it. I'm not ever coming out of here. Mm -hmm. So I did hear about that. The other experience that just, um, it was my own experience that helped me write this story. I was doing an advanced water 
open water certification because I wanted to go on this, I wanted to dive around this wreck called the Spiegel Grove and they wouldn't take you out unless you um, had an advanced certification. So they took us down into this lake in, in Texas that has a muddy hole in it pretty much called the silo. It's 60 feet deep and, and they want you to go down to 60 feet to register that deep dive so you can check a box on your certification. And once you get down there, there's so much silt, there's no light. Um, and, and also I would shine a light on my, my instruments, couldn't see, couldn't see the oxygen gauge. Uh, the only reason I knew someone was there is because they were gripping my arm and I'd never been so disoriented in my life. So once I came back up, one, I really appreciated how beautiful and crisp the sunshine was like, wow, look, sight, light, it's amazing. And the other thing was, uh, just the, the feeling of being so isolated in the dark really stuck with me. And kind of helped me write those scenes where, where Sia is lost in the dark, in the sinkhole. Mm-hmm. Clearly, based on some of those experiences, it seems like the story has been kind of piecing itself together in your head, at least in some ways. How long has it been kind of between the spark and the now? I started writing it in 2016, and it didn't go very well. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had a different idea, and I, I thought, hey, I'm going to write this. I love B-movies. I love B-horror movies with, with a beast in it. Um, so I thought I'm going to write a teen, a YA version of the Beast movie. And it's going to be a little bit funny and a little bit gross. And they're going to be on a boat the whole time. And I wrote 100 pages of it and just ended up throwing it away. It was I shouldn't have pantsed it that much. I didn't really mm. know what the character, the main character was about. Started again. This time we were in Paris. She was diving in Normandy and 40 pages I gave up. <laughs> This is not working. So I, I really couldn't figure out what it was I wanted to write because I, I knew I wanted to write about scuba diving, but it, you can't, that's not the way you write a story. Like, I want to write about scuba diving. So I had to figure out what the main character really wanted and what she didn't have and what her biggest wound was. And once I hit on to Sia and her family problem, which is if she doesn't help her mom with this dive charter, they're probably going to lose the business because their dad, who's in prison, isn't there to, to help with the tourists anymore. So she's lost her childhood, but she's also lost her father and she misses him terribly. So I had to get into that character before I really knew where the story was going. Had to discover who she was first, I guess. Yeah. So what drew you to the YA side of things versus kind of full on adult horror? My first novel was actually written for adults and it was literary fiction not very good. <laughs> you know, every so many writers, their first novels just should very much stay inside their computer. But after that, I did immediately go into YA, and I've written three YA novels. And I think it's partly because I'm an educator. I, I haven't taught in a while because I've switched to editing. But I taught junior high, 7th, 8th. I taught ninth, and I taught 11th grade. I had to read a lot of what they were reading so I could talk to them about it. Because when you're trying to teach a, a skill as an English teacher, if I used something that everybody was raving about, like Twilight or, or Hunger Games, they would perk up and pay attention. So mm. I, I found myself reading these. And then I realized, hey, I actually really like these books. And the writing is interesting because the pacing has to be pretty fast. The YA audience just doesn't have the, the patience for something a little bit more involved uh, with some backstory. So... It was kind of a fun challenge. Like, how can I layer in all the elements of story I want to put in there and keep the pace up at the same time? So, and I think it also, writing young adult helped me take myself less seriously. 
and I, that was a good thing for me, you know, trying to write my hoity-toity literary fiction novel. <laughs> I think I needed to to relax a little bit and just have some fun. Just put a glowing green monster in a book and have some adventure because it's what I really like. It's so easy for people to to read YA and think, well, you know, it's for for people younger than me, but kind of a, a nice change of pace compared to some of the the heavier quote unquote mature fiction. You know, it's it's funny. I've I've heard the stat. I don't know where I heard it, so I'm not sure I can rely on it. But that 70% of YA is read by people above the age of 18. So it's like less than half of the readers are actually school age. That's been happening since I think since Harry Potter started taking off like it did, and the the publishers were so shocked to find out that so many of their readers were adults. YA has been growing more mature as the years have gone by. So a lot of YA feels kind of mature. So I'm curious, obviously, there were a couple of iterations of Fractured Tide before you got to the story we have today. Are there any juicy tidbits you edited out of the book? Yeah, you know that thing about how you have to have a fast pace in YA? There were some scenes I really liked that I had to cut. So one is, it's not really a, a juicy, scary horror moment, but there's this moment on the island when the characters, so there's Sia, then Ben, the guy she has a crush on his ex-girlfriend, and then Sia's younger seven-year-old brother. And they're all sitting around the fire. And I always wondered, if I were on an island, trapped, what would I talk about? What would I do? I wouldn't have books or movies. And I would talk. I figured I would talk about movies. And so I have my four characters just talking about their favorite movies. And I really liked it. It had humor in it. You got to know the characters. And, and the scene actually had a purpose because uh, something Sia says sets off the ex-girlfriend and there's a fight that reveals kind of a secret. But in the end, it just didn't move the plot. So that had to go. And I had another one where Sia faces off against the monster on the wreck charter during a hurricane, uh, where she is up against this nasty captain who's on her charter. And she's just about to die. And uh, you get these amazing images of these tentacles coming up over the sides of the charter about to drag everything down. So I unfortunately lost that too. But I do have her having a, a prophetic dream where she sees parts of, of that scene. I would assume that uh, to write scenes like that, you must read some horror stuff yourself then. What, what kind of books do you read? I like, um, well, one thing I read a lot when I was trying to write the monster scenes in my book, I read The Mist by Stephen King. Everybody says Stephen King. Stephen King is the one we all we all go to, yeah. but it's true. I mean, his ability to terrify by leaving out details, the right details. There's an early tentacle scene in that um, I reread several times to try to understand. You know, what's the right balance of psychological detail and physical detail, and sort of just the choreography of it. So I read that. I also read young adult horror like Hell World, which mm. I thought was really great. There's Survive the Night. Danielle Vega, she's a young adult, or she's definitely goes a little bit more for the gore than I do, but I really like it. And I sometimes I think I might do that someday, might actually try to go a little bit more gory. And she did this great story that takes place in one night, all these teenagers who go to a rave in a closed off part of the New York subway and get trapped down there with a monster. And that's a really good story as well. So I do read a lot of young adult. There's a lot of really good young adult authors out there today. Jeff Vandermeer, I would have to say he's one of my all-time favorites. So uh, Annihilation, I read yeah. that right before I wrote this draft. 
And I think that it, it influenced me to try to write it as a journal slash letter because that one is written as a kind of a, a journal, a kind of a creepy journal from the main character who's obviously, you know, not telling you everything that yeah. she's going through. So obviously monsters kind of seem to hold a bit of an interest for you. Uh, why do you think that is? Maybe I go back again to that growing up on the lake. And it was a place that was so much fun because we had boats and fishing and swimming, but it was Mississippi. So the lake was full of water moccasins. So I always had this sense when I was enjoying myself that just out of reach, just in the tall grass there by the bank, could be something that could kill me. And I wouldn't see it. As kids, we were so attracted to the water. We just overcame our fear and went in. I also had this weird experience when I was in college. I was in, on an archaeological dig in the Savannah Back River. I was just a volunteer. I didn't know much about how to do it. They just needed somebody to carry buckets, pretty much. And I volunteered for it. And our boat broke down way up in this wild part of the river. And it was, it was downstream from a nature preserve, which was full of alligators, like a lot of big ones. You know, people will tell you that the alligators don't want to eat humans, and they don't. But still, when you're in the water with them, it's pretty freaky. So when the boat broke down, we had to walk back to the highway, which was about a kilometer away. And we had to walk mostly in the water because the banks were so choked with weeds and sawgrass. So we're in waist-deep water for a good, you know, kilometer, swimming across canals and just spotting alligators everywhere. And I don't know, that experience too, that kind of fear just implants itself in your subconscious and just keeps growing. So I think maybe that's another reason why I'm attracted to, to monster stories. That lizard part of your brain almost automatically reacts to situations like that. Yeah. So now that Fractured Tide is, is out in the world, uh, sounds like there's some caves in the works. Uh, do you have any other projects that you're working on? I have two that I've been working on, and I just put one on the back burner, which was a ghost story, and to move something up. Uh, I'm writing a book about, basically it's about a haunted safe. And I've had this image in my head for a long time about this haunted safe, and I created a town in South Texas, a very small town, that when that safe opens, whatever's in it, I'm not entirely sure yet what's in it, but it's bad, and it's going to wreak havoc upon the town. and <laughs> It's going to be a lot of destruction. I have a tendency to be drawn to characters who don't live typical teenage lives. So Sia, for example, she's homeschooled so she can run this charter with her mom. But these characters, Quinn and the older brother, Ollie, the younger brother, who's the main character, has been raised almost by his older brother because their parents are gone and the grandmother was sick and then she's recently died. And they run a campground that's near their house, where people come to look at the desert lights and look for the spook lights. I don't know if you know a lot about South Texas, but down near Marfa, they have all these legends about the spook lights of the desert. And it's so dark down there, you can see the Milky Way. It's really quite stunning. So they run this campground, but they find this safe, and they think, oh, all our money troubles are over. I bet what's in this thing's going to clear the mortgage on the house. And then when they open it, I really don't know what's in it yet, Yeah, <laughs> but it's going to be awful. <laughs> so I haven't, open, I haven't had them crack the safe yet, but we'll see. So do you write a bunch of stuff at the same time? Do you have a bunch of ideas flowing and kind of pick one up for a bit and then set it down, or are you fairly focused? I'm fairly focused. So the, um, for example, the ghost story I wrote is completely finished, but I'm letting it sit for a bit. I think it can, it's just not quite ready and I'm tired of revising it. I don't know if you ever get this way mm. with your writing that you just, 
a project starts to feel like a beat down and you just feel like, oh, I got to put this thing aside for a while. And I think part of writing isn't just about time management. It's about emotional management, like trying mm. to manage your feeling about your writing so that you can put your emotional energy into it. Because when you do that, you're able to focus on what matters in the story and it's just more efficient. You don't end up going down some blind alley for two months because you're, you know, you're so tired you couldn't tell that it didn't matter anymore. I like, I'm sure you've read this as well, Stephen King's on writing. And mm -hmm. I try to do what he does, what he suggested, which is go through and just write a draft all the way through, then put it down, give yourself a couple months space while you work on something small, and then come back to it with a clean head. That really helps me to, to just get distance from it. Revising, I think, can be a lot easier than drafting. Some people don't feel that way, but for me, I can procrastinate by revising my first hundred pages for a long time. <laughs> and then if you do that, let's say you revise that chapter 15 times. And once you finish the book, you realize, wait, I don't need that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big Oops. darling to kill at that point. Yep. Then you don't want to let it go. You don't, you don't admit that it's weighing the whole yeah. book down. And so that's why I, I love having a community of writers because they give you feedback. That's a, actually, I should have mentioned, that's a big part of my process is reading stuff to my workshop group. That helps a lot, getting to some unbiased opinions and reactions. As you're writing, are you thinking about the person reading it and how they're going to perceive it or what they're going to think about it? Or do you focus more on, this is the story I want to tell and this is the way I want to tell it? Two things. One, I get into that zone where I'm just enjoying the story and, and get that feeling like, yes, this is exactly the way I wanted this scene to go. This is what I want these characters to be. Because I'm writing young adult, I often think about some of my students. I got very attached to my students. They were wonderful especially the ones that would come after class and hand me a book they got from the library and said, oh, Mrs. I was Brown back then. Mrs. Brown, you've got to read this book. It's amazing. And how much they loved reading and how much they loved fantasy novels and science fiction. So sometimes when I'm writing, I'm thinking, you know, would Haley like this? I wonder if she would like this or uh, would John like this? One of the things about writing YA is you want to have some challenge for that age group, but you also want to be emotionally appropriate. So I'm always thinking like, what, what would be too much? Generally, I make my romance. I like romantic subplots. I will defend the romantic subplot till the day I die. I know not everybody likes those, but I love them. But I do keep them pretty tame. And that's part of why is because of that part of the, the readership. At the same time, I don't want to talk down to the audience because those, kid, those kids are smart and 70% of my readers are adults. So it's a weird line to walk. You want to make it scary enough, which it's strange that young people can handle gore and fear much better than they can handle like adult content regarding any kind of sexual content, for example, which it doesn't end up in YA much for this reason, I think. There's such a range of maturity levels in that way, too. That's for sure. I remember when I was 12, I was reading everything I could get my hands on, including Stephen King's Night Shift, which I should yep. not have been reading. There are other people who that age... They are not ready. So speaking of readers who are ready, uh, for listeners who'd like to dig into this slice of seaside horror, where's the best place to get their hands on a copy of Fractured Tide? Oh, yeah. If uh, the easiest uh, way to find my book, if you want to go to LeslieKarenLutz.com, and Lutz is L-U-T as in tango, Z as in zebra. LeslieKarenLutz.com, you'll find all the buy links. You can get it, you know, anywhere books are sold. Um, I also have a link there to a bookstore called Interabang, 
in Dallas, which is an indie bookstore. And I also have the IndieBound link. So whenever you can, if you can buy your books through IndieBound, that's always a good idea. And you can you can benefit a, a little independent bookstore near you. There's some ways to do that on their website. But you can also sign up for my newsletter there. Uh, and I do occasionally publish a monster blog, which I've been really bad about lately. But I I like to write about monsters. So yeah. I've got some monster blogging on that on that site. Well, thanks for taking the time and chatting with me today, Leslie. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been great being on. Thank you so much for having me on your show. That was author Leslie Lutz, whose newest novel, Fractured Tide, released on May 5th. If you'd like to pick it up or find more details about Leslie and her other work, links are in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, children of the night. And until next time, stay safe and stay scared. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.